Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Art and Empire, the Golden Age of Spain at the San Diego Museum of Art. My guest is the show's curator, Michael A. Brown. The exhibition is just the second American show to join the art and decorative art of Golden Age Spain with art from Spanish-controlled centers such as Antwerp and Naples and the Spanish imperial lands in the Americas and the Philippines. The exhibition features outstanding works by the Spanish names you know, including Velázquez, Murillo, and Zerberon, classics from the San Diego Museum of Art's fine European collection, including that great Juan Sanchez Cotán still life, and lots of works by new Spanish painters such as Miguel Cabrera and painters whose names are lost to us. I saw the show a couple weeks ago. It's terrific, one of the absolute exhibitions of the year. Art and Empire is on view in San Diego through September 2nd. The outstanding exhibition catalog was published by the museum. Amazon offers it for $39. On the second segment, William Forsyth at the MFA Houston. But first, Michael A. Brown, after the break. Peter Paul Rubens is recognized as one of the most celebrated painters of all time. But his international acclaim was far from an assured outcome. Witness his rise to the highest ranks of European painters in Early Rubens, on view now at San Francisco's Legion of Honor Museum. Focusing on what is arguably Rubens' most innovative period of production from 1608 until about 1620, the exhibition showcases almost 50 works, including large-scale paintings never before seen in the U.S. Don't miss your chance to see Early Rubens at the Legion of Honor before it closes on September 8th. Visit legionofhonor.org for details. Celebrate art, wine, and culture this summer by signing up for Bacchus Uncorked. Three Saturday evening programs at the Getty Villa, July 13th, July 27th, and August 3rd. Enjoy presentations on Roman culture and wine. Then taste Italian wines while taking in the villa's stunning architecture and gardens. Learn more and get tickets at getty.edu 360. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Icons of Style, a Century of Fashion Photography, showcasing the industry's rich and varied history through more than 200 photographs by famous practitioners and lesser-known yet influential artists. From elegant 20th-century portraits to the trend-setting fashions of Beyoncé, David Bowie, Audrey Hepburn, Run DMC, and more, this broad and diverse perspective on fashion traces its trajectory from niche industry to powerful cultural force. On view through September 22nd. Visit mfah.org icons for more. And we're back. Michael Brown, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's a pleasure being here with you. Let's open by defining the terrain covered by the show. In an introductory catalog essay, the great Jonathan Brown suggests we discard the national school way of thinking, you know, the Dutch school, the French school, and yada yada, and instead talk about what he calls artistic geography, which is a space broader than conventional European boundaries, which have changed a lot over time anyway. So what is the artistic geography you're including here? Well, essentially, the Spanish monarchy, as it was known, comprised of 24 kingdoms. And these stretched from the, the Iberian Peninsula, of course, which we all think of as Spain and Portugal, to the southern half of Italy and Sicily, which was ruled by a Spanish viceroy at the time, to duchies like Milan or territories like the Spanish Netherlands, which was governed by a Spanish archduke and archduchess. All the way to across the Atlantic, we have the Kingdom of New Spain, roughly Mexico, Central America, the Caribbean, as well as southern, the southern or southwestern United States. 
and uh, the Philippines, which was part of New Spain as well. Down through South America, the kingdom of, of Peru, and then a little bit later, the kingdom of New Granada. Uh, so this is a huge, huge global territory that we're, we're, we're talking about. We tried to represent as much as possible with the finest works of art available for loan in the, in the show. The quality of the loans here um, is, is, is pretty nuts, and we'll get to some great examples of that. What is San Diego's place within that Spanish world, and how much does San Diego as a place matter in your show? We kick off the show physically anyway with with a map of the of the territories. We have historical maps in the show, but we also created with our graphic design team uh, here at the museum an interactive map that covers the the territory at least uh, at least partially in a in a graphically pleasing instructive way. But also we we begin the show with a with a beautiful sculpture by Pedro de Mena of San Diego de Alcala, our city's namesake. And in that sense, we introduce our viewers to the idea that where we're standing during this time period that we've called the Golden Age, Spain's Golden Age included uh, indeed the space that, that people are standing in the exhibition itself. Of course, there's indigenous history to San Diego. It was, uh, it was first explored by the Spanish, at least, in uh, the 16th century, and then settled uh, as a city quite a bit later. But it is a reminder that San Diego, in this object of this beautiful sculpture of, of San Diego, it's a reminder that we were part of this Spanish monarchy. Yeah, just to tie that up a bit, Spanish missionaries are in San Diego establishing or beginning the process of establishing what would be the two missions that in different form are there now in about 1769. And by my count, and this could be wrong, the, la the, the latest work in the show are the Costa paintings, Jose de Alcibar from 1778. So the show more or less ends, ends air quotes, yeah, right at that moment. So there are loose sections in the show built around portraiture, religious subjects, and so on. And I'm going to try to lead us through them in a way that keeps the show's theme, the greater Spanish world, intact. Uh, I'd be crazy not to start with royal portraiture, especially because you have two remarkable portraits of Philip IV here. Who painted them and what kind of do they remind us of? What, what do they point us toward? Well, these two remarkable portraits, one lent from the Meadows Museum in Dallas, the other from the National Gallery in London, these represent Velazquez's earliest portrait of his great patron and lifelong friend, the King of Spain, and then his final portrait of Philip IV. And you can see, which is the one from London, and you can see that you know in the thirty odd years that span the 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 two the two works, the ravages of time and the decline of empire and the kind of impact that's had on the king. And and in, as far as the latter goes, we know from a letter that Philip IV wrote that, that has survived, that he was very reluctant to allow Velasquez to portray him because he knew that he was going to portray him as he really looked, which was old and tired, essentially. He also lamented the fact that Velasquez is such a, a slow worker. He, he anticipates, the king anticipates having to sit for hours on end 
although he knows that Velasquez will will paint a masterpiece and he will do justice to uh, his subject, uh, he's still the king is still re- very reluctant to sit for this portrait. And as far as uh, the importance of royal portraiture, there's a political importance to to making these objects because Velasquez would do these rather simple looking images. These are iconic images. There's no, uh, there's very, very little symbolic or allegorical content. The king is the empire. The king is the symbol enough. He is the head of the body politic, if you will. And so his face is enough to convey the entire monarchy, the entire kingdom. And this, this kind of introduces our visitors to the idea of portraiture in the Spanish world. And it's a little bit different than, uh, say, portrait, portraiture in France or portraiture in England. And these two iconic works that kind of bookend each other make that point extremely powerfully. There's also a print here by Jan Muller uh, after Rubens, a portrait of the Austrian Archduke Albert. What functions would these portraits have served in greater, you know, in a far-flung Spanish world? Would, would, would prints made after these portraits have traveled far and wide to, to serve as a... Yeah, absolutely. Prints were, were designed. You mentioned one. There's another one of the Count Duke of Olivares, who was the king's favorite or prime minister, which was a collaboration between Rubens and Velasquez. But these, these prints would have been sent by the royal courts, in the case of the Archduke Albert and, and then later Isabella, as rulers of the Netherlands, they could send these prints very easily across the continent. They could send these back to the court in Madrid, for example, and they could send them even further afield as reminders of the monarch who was ultimately in charge. So you, we find portraits of, of the kings of Spain, say, in Mexico, or elsewhere, and the image served to legitimize the sitting viceroy. So these works works on paper were much easier to send around the globe, and the images be, become a representative or surrogate of the sitter. And they were there was often a diplomatic function of of these images, and portraits were made as gifts. And so it was a they they were diplomatic gifts, but also a reminder of of uh, who it was that was responsible for the governance and, and rulership of the of the territories. Artists trained in Spain traveled to, were sent to, sent themselves to Peru and New Spain. And when they got there, they made portraits too. Who yeah. who did they paint and 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 I guess why? Well, we know from at least one example that's represented in the show the Archbishop Garcia Guerra, he, he, was, he was sent, and this is a very political appointment, uh, he was sent as the new Archbishop of Mexico City in 1609. And traveling in his retinue, we have his painter, who was appointed by the king's favorite. And there was a, a man of letters that, that traveled in the, in the retinue. And the, the artist, basically, you know, this is his, his, first, his first official court portrait of the archbishop after they arrive in Mexico. And and he was also, this is Alonso Lopez de Herrera, uh, who I'm referring to, he's also responsible for setting up a workshop and for bringing the official royal court taste to, to Mexico to an attempt to, it wasn't entirely successful, but there was an attempt made to 
bring the artistic endeavors in New Spain into line with, to align, uh, I should say, with, with what was going on in Spain. And this is a process that happens over, over and over through 200 years of, of history. But things, things evolve differently in, in, in the Americas. And, and in New Spain, the clientele for portraiture included many of the so-called great 100 families of Mexico. These are the, these are the American aristocracy. They were, they were very wealthy. They dressed much more flamboyantly than the Spaniards uh, in Spain did because of uh, sumptuary laws. And we see a portrait of one of these, a daughter of one of these families towards the end of the exhibition. We don't know who the artist is, but she's standing uh, next to a harpsichord indicating her virtue, her education, her status, and so forth. But one of the, maybe one of the most impressive or important portraits from New Spain in the in the show is, is of course, has to be that of Sor Juana. The Miguel Cabrera. Yes, exactly. So Miguel Cabrera paints Sister Juana. This is a posthumous image, but uh, it's basically the most iconic of the great writer and uh, and intellect of the 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 golden age in in Mexico. And she has a, a fascinating life. She ran afoul of church, uh, you know, the church hierarchy as a as a feminist writer, as a writer of material that wasn't always in line with the, the church church's teachings. She was an outlier. She was a brilliant, brilliant writer. And uh, she could also intellectually run circles around her superiors, and uh, which led to, led to conflict in her life. But during the period of time that Miguel Cabrera captures her, this is, again, I emphasize it's posthumous, but it's, uh, it's an image of her at the height of her career. She is under the protection of the Viceroy, the wife of the Viceroy. She is a lady-in-waiting. She's a Hieronymite nun, and which helps to explain why she's wearing this gorgeous oil-on-copper nun's badge or nun's shield and a escudo de monja around her neck, and which she would have worn in public as a way to deflect from, from her great beauty. She's also depicted in a composition that would have typically been reserved exclusively for male sitters. And that's one of the reasons that we compare the image of Sor Juana with that of the archbishop. And he was actually viceroy for a time as well. So there was no separation of church and state in this society. Her library is bigger than his. <laughs> it is, in fact. <laughs> and there are some very interesting volumes in her library, because it's not all uh, religious tomes. It's not all you know, St. Thomas Aquinas and, and other, uh, the other great, you know, writers and doctors of the church. She's got volumes uh, from the ancient classical world, secular volumes, and she also has two, two artistic treatises that are uh, horizontal on the, on the bookshelf behind her. And one of which, the one on the bottom, is Arte de la Pintura, which is the, the great artistic or painting treatise by Velasquez's teacher and father-in-law, Francisco Pacheco. And we have work in the, in the exhibition nearby, which is by Francisco Pacheco. And so Miguel Cabrera uh, is, or her library was legendary. Also, the loss of her library was legendary as well. She was forced to Late in her life, she was forced to give up her library by her ecclesiastical superiors, male superiors. 
And Cabrera does something brilliant here because he doesn't know if these works are actually in her library because the library is dispersed. But he includes them in her uh, in her library because he knows that she is a she is a great patron of the arts and, and patron of the visual arts as well as literature. And of course, he is the greatest painter of the time in in Mexico and himself a published author and great intellect. And and so to tie in Pacheco and his art of painting to Sor Juana, here's Miguel Cabrera making this wonderful kind of connection where where the dots, you know, he, he's connecting dots that may or may not be there, but it's significant for the viewer and it's sending a very, very potent message. It's terrific. We'll have an image of both the painting and a nun's shield that's in the show on manpodcast.com. Obviously, as, as, as anybody who knows anything about art knows, Catholicism is a significant subject of Spanish art, and there is no shortage of gripping Spanish religious painting here in your show. So let's start in European Spain, if you will. In European Spain, painters painted long familiar to them, much familiar to us, religious scenes, paintings of the visitation of saints like Sebastian and so on. At the risk of being a little overly simple, and I admit I'm asking this to set up what's next, what makes European Spanish religious painting Spanish? What what characterizes it? Well, there there are a couple of couple of things at work here. One is the Council of Trent that happens in the 16th century, and it lays out the strategy for the visual arts, the official Catholic Church strategy for the use of the visual arts in the retention of people that are the faithful who are leaving to join Protestant churches. And one of the things that is emphasized is reflected in the rise of naturalism. And this enables the, depicting things as they really look in, in earthy tones and in, and in images that are relatable to the average person. You know, the, they were exposed to images during their visits to church, and these were, these were the public venues. So these, these things had to tell stories. They had to both be relatable on a human and often an emotional level, but they also had to they had to share the narrative in a way, even from a distance, people could recognize what was going on in, in, in the paintings or in the sculptures. And Spain occupies a, a, a unique role politically at this time, which is it is the officially, it is the defender of the faith. It is the 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 worldly arm of the of the Roman Catholic Church. And in its uh, depictions of religious scenes, you can see that it's taking this role as defender of the faith very, very seriously. And it brings in, Spain brings in artists from essentially all over Europe. So there are Flemish artists and Italian artists in order to create a essentially a uniform, or at least I should say, a, a, yeah, a, a united front against Protest, Protestantism in, in, in the visual arts. The way that naturalism developed in, uh, in Spain is a little bit different because it brings together both some of the Florent, Florentine reform painters like, like the Carduccio brothers alongside highly realistic Flemish painters uh, which were already in the royal collection in in Madrid from the 15th and 16th century, 
but it combines those two strands into into a uh, pictorial language that's a hybrid in and of itself. So it is different than than what's than what Caravaggio is doing, for example, or 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 you know even what's happening in the north in Northern Europe. So this hybrid style results ultimately in figures like Velasquez and 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 even Zurbaran, who are themselves masters at kind of synthesizing uh, these various uh, various influences and 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 previous traditions. You have a particularly great Zerberon in the show. It's a supper at Emmaus, big, tall painting, but uh, all of the action in the painting happens in about uh, 5% of the canvas in the middle, uh, right on the tabletop. That's right. This is an incredible painting, uh, which which Zerberon actually painted for originally for the cathedral in Mexico City. So he painted it for export. Like you say, it's monumental. It's also a scene that's highly dramatic. Jesus is sitting at the table with the two, with his two followers, disciples. These are not two of the original twelve, by the way. This is a, a later, later story. But uh, they had been in Jerusalem and they'd left Jerusalem. And as they're walking, they are talking about their their doubts about Jesus, about about everything, about everything that that uh, surrounding Jesus and, and and the crucifixion, which has already happened. And they think, well, he was supposed to be the new king, but he's been crucified. He's dead and gone. And and as they're walking, they're joined by a stranger. And the stranger joins in their in their conversation. And then night falls, and they have to stop. And they invite the stranger to join them for 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 dinner and to spend the night. And as they sit down for their meal, the the stranger breaks this loaf of bread, which he's doing in the painting. And it's the split second that he breaks the loaf of bread that Zerberon depicts. And their eyes were opened. They immediately recognize who they're dining with and their thoughts are their, their, uh, their, their doubts are dispelled. And interestingly, Zerberon depicts Jesus wearing the traditional garb of a Andalusian of an Andalusian peasant farmer, including the the great broad-brimmed hat that is the dead giveaway that this is Jesus dressed as a Spaniard, and as well the the meal uh, is is recognizably Spanish with olives and white asparagus, and the and the ceramic vessel containing the wine uh, is that blue and white of the of the south of Spain. So. All of these things make the narrative immediately recognizable and accessible to a contemporary audience. Naturally, Catholic painting follows the Spanish Empire uh, in all directions. So when painters who were born in, often trained in Spain, get to New Spain or Peru, are they pretty much painting the same Catholic stories and figures that the Spanish are painting in Spain, or are they liberalizing or adding to the canon, if you will? Well, there's one, there's one great example of, of this in the, in the show, probably more than one example, but the one that I'm thinking of is, is the St. Michael and the Bull, which is a monumental painting of the Archangel, lent by the Denver Art Museum by an artist named Sebastián López de Arteaga, who was trained in Seville and left for Mexico, where he died not long after arriving in Mexico, in fact, and this is probably his, his, his greatest masterpiece, his one really best-known work. There's another one in Mexico that's a slightly different style, but 
this uh, this painting, he is very much still working in his Seville style. And you know, when when we when we cleaned the painting at the Denver Art Museum, the the palette was really revealed as uh, tonally. Someone even said close to El Greco, but I think even closer to Francisco Pacheco, suggesting that uh, that he may well have trained in, in Pacheco's studio as a, as a young, young artist before going to Mexico. But the story itself is an Italian miraculous event in which the archangel intervenes in a property dispute involving a bull. And actually, this story does not appear in the canon typically in Spain. It does occasionally occur in Italian art, but for whatever reason, this was commissioned by someone who we don't know who in Mexico City. And one of the stories that that aligns so closely with the with the intercession of the of the archangel, well, giving another little backstory, the archangel appears to the archbishop in the painting and asks that a church be built on the spot where the miraculous inter- intervention had taken place. This is such a parallel. St. Michael is very important to the church authorities in New Spain, especially in Puebla, as a uh, kind of patron saint. He was also a devotion, special devotion of Paula Fox, who is a bishop of Puebla. Anyway, the parallel is uh, that I'm thinking of is that of the Virgin of Guadalupe, who also miraculously appears in Mexico to the to the indigenous peasant Juan Diego, now Saint Juan Diego, and she asks the Archbishop in Mexico, or he she asks him, Juan Diego, to go and request that a church be built on the spot in which she appears, uh, just like the Archangel Michael had done, and we have. You know, it spans quite a lot of square footage, but directly across from the uh, Archangel Michael is Miguel Cabrera's image of the Virgin of Guadalupe surrounded by four vignettes of the story of her apparition and the eventual construction of of the church. So the parallel there, this Italian miraculous story is used as a parallel for something that happens in Mexico. When I had Ilona Katsu on the show a year or two ago to discuss her painting in Mexico show that was then at LACMA, uh, and we'll have a link to that on manpodcast.com, one of the things we talked about was this new world thing of painting paintings of religious statues. So before we get to a great example in the show, maybe the greatest, at least for me, the most spectacular object in the show, what, what is that tradition and where the heck did it come from? Because it doesn't, as I, as far as I can recall, come from come from Europe. Well, you know, there there is this tradition throughout, especially South America, but uh, you find it in in Mexico as well, and a number of very well known examples. These portraits of of sculptures, they're 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 paintings of you know three dimensional works of art that would have been uh, in churches and were special devotions, sometimes regional or local devotions, and because of the because of the immigrant nature of the population, both in in South America and, Mex- and Mexico, they uh, often would uh, commission paintings of devotions that maybe their family or even them they themselves had left behind in Europe. And two great examples are in the show from from two different cities in Peru. One one from one from Lima, and uh, and the other originally painted in Cusco. 
And the style between the two, the differences in style between the two are very instructive, but also they're in they're in dialogue with a with a sculpture of uh, from Guatemala, uh, which was a great wood sculpting center of not of the Virgin Mary, but but of Saint Teresa of Avila. The two paintings, one from Lima and the one from Cusco, flank a beautiful wood polychromed wood sculpture from Guatemala of uh, Saint Teresa of Avila and who was herself a great devotion in, in Spain. And this devotion spread throughout the Americas as well. But the two paintings of the statues, one of the Virgin of the Forsaken, the other of the Virgin of Loreto, again, an Italian devotion that uh, becomes very popular in the Americas. These depict wood polychrome wood sculptures that could be dressed according to the, the liturgical calendar. So uh, this is why the 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 Christ child is is depicted in this gold brocade kind of conical garment in the one from from Cusco, which which is a prolif- you know it's got this proliferation of gold over the paint surface, which is quite wonderful. It's got a lot of surface texture. It's, it's, it's a sensational textile. I mean, the textiles across the painting are are different, notably pointedly different, and and super detailed, super luxe, uh, volumetric, all the good things. Well, and in the Virgin of Loreto, painted in Lima, uh, she's dressed in a garment that's made of Chinese silk, which is wild. We will come back to Asia in a minute. Before we leave uh, the Lady of the Pillar, there is the object on uh, your walls contains within it a series of imperial overlays, if you will. From the frame inward, could you walk us through how the empire is evident in the object? Our Lady of the Pillar, there is a depiction in the background of of this leather, and the frame, which is engaged, is a as an imitation of that that very type of of leather. And this was a uh, technique, an Islamic technique originally that that was mastered in workshops in, especially in the the uh, east of Spain, Iberian Spain, I mean, and became, of course, very popular uh, in in the New World. So, what we see is basically the multicultural kind of fabric of the Spanish world, essentially in one object. Uh, we're getting a uh, just this massive artistic and cultural exchange. It's quite a wonderful object. It, it also depicts a Franciscan, two monks, Franciscan and uh, Dominican, in the foreground of the painting. So more Italy there. Exactly. And I imagine the lace uh, underneath the sculpture of Our Lady of the Pillar is Spanish. Well, it could be. It could easily be Flemish. But typically, that's where uh, that's where you know the they would source source the lace. So, yeah, if you had to ask me, I would say that's that's probably Flemish or or maybe even French lace. We have these uh, North and South American paintings of polychromed sculptures. There are also in your exhibition polychrome sculptures from European, Iberian, Spain, and as you mentioned, polychrome sculptures made in the Americas. I don't, it's entirely possible they exist and I don't know about them, but I don't know of a Iberian Spanish tradition of making paintings that depict polychromed sculptures. Why and how did that happen in American Spain? 
Yes, there there was there there are some examples of uh, Spanish paintings. There are few and far between. We had we actually had one lined up for for loan to the show that uh, that loan ended up not being able to happen. It's an interesting story because it also resulted in the successful loan of the of the huge Rubens tapestry that's in the show. So sadly, we did not get a painting, but we did in its place get the get the tapestry. A tapestry that's larger than the galleries. That's correct. Yes. And it hangs one inch, one inch off the floor. Well, the 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 tradition of of depictions of these polychrome wood sculptures, uh, these devotional works, you know, it was, it was a way for for the faithful and for confraternities and so forth, other religious institutions to to bring uh, their you know their traditions with them. And uh, if they had come, if they had emigrated from parts of parts of Europe, uh, whether it was Iberian, you know, the Iberian Peninsula or, or Italy, their familiar devotions could travel with them, so to speak, after they had, you know, commissioned an artist in, in the Americas to to paint to their specifications, the the their own special devotion. So you mentioned the Chinese silk evident in Our Lady of the Pillar, one of the most interesting Parts of this show is how much Asia is is in a show about the greater Spanish world. What role does uh, New Spain and Peru have in bringing Asia into European Spain? Is it through the New World that Asia enters Spanish Spanish ports in Antwerp? Basically, yes, because everything that came from Manila on the annual Manila galleon shipment uh, these fleets would go once a year from manila and uh, they would arrive uh, full of silk and porcelain and other and spices and, and other and other goods all of these things would arrive on the west coast of uh, of mexico and then have to be transported over land to be shipped to europe where they would enter europe in seville uh, which ha- had the Customs House. So everything that came from the Americas, any everything licit anyway, uh, would go through Seville. But over the the land journey, uh, the shipment would stop in Mexico City, and there was an annual Parian market, as it was known, where these Asian goods, some of them, could be sold. And so the the shipment that arrived in Acapulco would dwindle as it traveled over land before arriving in Spain. And things like folding screens became incredibly popular. There's uh, Chinese blue and white porcelain throughout the Americas, uh, you know, at a very, very early date. And there was a popularity for things from Asia uh, among the, the elite in, in Mexico. And the folding screen is itself a whole story. But uh, these these objects became incredibly popular and to the point where uh, Mexican artists began making their own folding screens in their own in their own style. Uh, there was also a community of artists, at least for a number of years. These are Japanese artists that were resident in Mexico. And and so the 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 artists in Mexico would learn a great deal from the examples and the people and the materials that came over from Japan in this uh, particular instance of the folding screen. And then things also were shipped from Mexico to to Peru. Not all of this was strictly legal, but there was a popularity for 
for folding screens and other Asian-inspired objects in the wealthy households of, especially of Lima, and and so the 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 elite in in Peru and Mexico were were leading the charge as as far as a as far as this fashion or trend uh, for all things Asian ahead of their European counterparts. So is what we're seeing then is artists in New Spain and Peru taking ideas sourced in Italy, the Netherlands, and Spain, adapted for New Spain and Peru, and then applying them to support the ideas for which such as screens came from Asia? Or are we also seeing influences of Asian art Asian textiles and Asian luxury goods also influencing and coming into those those paintings, if you will, on screens and other things. I think that one of the one of the overarching concepts of the show is that uh, that these the exchange of cultural goods and ideas, artists and 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 people and 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 so forth. These it was very fluid at the time. It was not a uh, one to one you know, Spain influencing the art of Mexico. That's not at all what, what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a multi-directional exchange of ideas and, and artistic styles and materials from uh, throughout the, the monarchy, whether it's from Manila. And we have, we have a couple of choice examples of Hispano-Philippine uh, ivory carvings in the show. One which is one which is taken from a print by Durer, and the other the other is uh, is quite is a masterpiece, quite noticeably Chinese in influence. But these ideas went back and forth, and 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 sometimes more more than a couple of times. I mean, we have a material like cochineal that would cross oceans in various forms, from raw materials to finished textiles and paintings. You know, this the the same kind of the same dye, the same cochineal could could go back and forth across the Atlantic two or three times in some cases, in various iterations. Uh, whether it was a a textile completed in in the Netherlands, for example, and then sent back or then shipped out to England and then worn by by soldiers during the Revolutionary War, or red coats. I mean, that's wild. My 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 senses were a lot closer to the beginning of understanding all these relationships and impacts than we are to anything resembling the end. I agree fully. Michael Brown, thanks very much. My pleasure. Thank you for being here. This summer, the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Disappearing California Circa 1970, featuring works by artists Bastian Otter, Chris Burden, and Jack Goldstein. The exhibition, curated by Philip Kaiser, examines the shared common interest in themes of disappearance and self-effacement, manifesting in works that were daring and often dangerous, on view through August 11th. The Modern is also featuring David Park, A Retrospective, organized by SF MoMA and curator Janet Bishop. This is the first major museum exhibition in more than 30 years to present the artist's powerfully expressive work. David Park is best known as the founder of the Bay Area Figurative School. On view September 22nd. Visit themodern.org for more information. Welcome back. My next guest is William Forsyth. He joins me to discuss William Forsyth choreographic objects at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. It's there through September 15th. 
The exhibition presents a series of works that reveal the ways in which visitors consciously and unconsciously move, interact, and respond to each other and their own bodies. Forsyth is the former director of the Ballet Frankfurt and later of the Forsyth Company. The Houston selection of works is drawn from a larger exhibition that debuted at the Institute of Contemporary Art Boston. The exhibition in Houston was curated by Allison DeLima Green. William Forsyth, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much, Tyler. You're a choreographer. The works on view at the MFA Houston are, of course, in an art museum in a space designed for and, and typically filled by paintings and sculptures and photographs and, and the things we typically think of as being visual art. How do you think of choreography as potentially having or as having a space within that environment? It's interesting for me that these things have migrated of their own accord. You can't invite yourself to the museum party, you know what I'm saying? And that there has been this, at least uh, on, from my side, a real interest in these is interesting because they are choreography. They're not visual art. Qualified, bona fide choreographer through and through. I am very interested in maintaining my choreographic citizenship. I, I don't want to apply for uh, citizenship in this other place. I'm not uh, educated in that, uh, that domain, and I am, though, very experienced in my own domain. So, so to take what you just said and to pivot toward the three works on, on view in Houston, the first work I want to raise is called Nowhere and Everywhere at the Same Time, number two, which is, if you will, a follow-up to a work called Nowhere and Everywhere at the Same Time, full stop, a work made for a solo dancer, a work with 40 pendulums hanging from above, 40 weighted pendulums hanging from above. The work in Houston, number two, features more than 400 pendulums. The original, if again, if you will, was made for a solo dancer. The, the work in Houston uh, invites, allows spectators to navigate the space physically. What for you is the, the shift that makes the first piece a about and a a product of of, of choreography and that opens up the second piece. What is your thought process in opening up the second piece? It's the nature of choreography to change, right? Uh, So if you you make a a piece, let's say a piece of sculpture, a visual artist, you probably won't change it once it goes into the museum, right? I don't think they'd allow it, actually. Conservation practice would probably be up in arms. Whereas choreography is an evolving thing at least for myself. I have, I've had pieces I've worked on for 30 years, and primarily because I didn't have the skill set I needed when I began the pieces, which I you know, later acquired, was able to do the piece I wanted to do. In the case of the pendulums, I didn't have the resources to do the piece I wanted to do. So once the resources were in place, I was able to do it more mechanized, more automated, and really address the subject of counterpoint and avoidance. I'm really interested, rather than having professional performers in this series of work, I'm much more interested in addressing the museum spectator. Why? Because their relationship to the subject is, there's sort of a blank slate in some, in some way in terms of choreographic process. And in choreographic process, you're looking at properties of action, right? Or action involving properties. So let's take, for example, the pendulums. The principal property of action is avoidance, 
right? And this avoidance is deeply metaphorical. It's about not taking a hit, right? Which seems to be what a lot of our life is revolving around, whether it be physically, like how many uh, health blogs can we possibly look at? There are financial blogs. There's every kind of blog. So everyone's trying, it seems to me, to not take a hit. But in this case, it's boiled down to a space of pure intention. There's nothing else to do but focus with your unconscious competence yeah, on this physical metaphor for our general condition. An interesting element of that is, of course, people can enter the work, but also people can choose not to enter the work and to simply see people, see others as, as they engage with the work. You know, I understand your interest in the point of view of the spectator as a choreographer. Did you think about or have a particular point of view on how the spectator exists with this work in a museum context? Okay, a choreography is a series of events governing a set of physical values, all changing at different and variable rates, right? Especially in the pendulums. And those events that enfold a choreographic outcome encompass the, the possibilities and also the impedances incumbent in such a differential framework. So it means that there's many kinds of system, systems operating over each other at different rates, put it simply. If the spectator accepts the proposal to engage, then I'm, I'm going to make an assumption, which I don't like doing, but it has something to do with dancers deciding to dance. It's the hope to encounter some sort of ontological product that may have otherwise eluded your ordinary experience. There's a kind of hope there that this might show you something that under other circumstances you just couldn't possibly have. Yeah, it's an interesting relationship between how an artist might think about a painting or sculpture, right? I think that's true in a lot of ways across disciplines. You know, I was thinking about the notion of truth. I was saying, when you're in that environment, I don't think the environment can be false. <laughs> it is what it is. There's nothing else but that. And you are usually deeply, or the, in all the various choreographic objects, people are often primarily focused on their own proprioception. So I would say by that, I would say quantities of forces determine the outcome or the subject, which is qualitatively sensory. You know, not just focused on optics or how something looks or scopic action, but rather the range of motion of activity and thought too. And it's an opportunity for self-reflection. Uh, there was a there was a um, a writer uh, for the I think the evening, evening Standard in London. He said, "Oh, these are instruments of self-knowledge after failing miserably on one." <laughs> and a majority of them are focused on failure. I think that that is how you confront your yourself, especially in our practice, in dance, in choreography, in traditional practice, is acquiring the, let's say, either the mental agility or the physical agility of what's needed. You have a, a number of different things going on. I would say like themes for, or the properties of action which are embedded in some of these objects are avoidance or cessation or disturbance, deceleration, inhibition, you know, obstruction, all that kind of stuff, impedance. 
So everything is designed to make you, I'm going to say, extra aware of your deficits on one hand, physically and cognitively, and examine what exactly drives you forward. Why do you even put up with this? Speaking of, of, of failure, there is a work in the show that strikes me as, as substantially about failure. Towards the Diagnostic Gaze is a work in which you place a feather duster on a stone shelf and invite the viewer to, as the piece says, hold the object absolutely still, which anyone will quickly find is pretty much impossible because the feather duster, as, as someone holds it in their hand, registers every tiny movement the body makes right down to our our breathing or or our slight swaying in the air conditioning or whatever so for you is that a work that is only about the body and movement or is it accessing metaphors related to failure and maybe other metaphors too okay on the surface i guess with the title it addresses possible analyses of the outcome. You, I, uh, it won't stop moving. That's why it says diagnostic. Self-diagnosis is a very common thing these days, right? That's what we have. The I'm shaking. In my case, I was uh, when I happened upon it, I thought, oh, my dad had Parkinson's. Is this, you know, I'm, I'm whatever, 60-something. Is this a, a sign, subtly? Or is it just my nervous system and my circulatory system? But for me, there's another subject, which is what is the threshold of the choreographic? What's categorically sufficient or what is adequate to satisfy the conditions of a particular set of definitions? And yeah, it must be the same in visual arts. Every, every contemporary practice probably wrestles with the, the evolution of its defining conditions, right? The conventions of art our practice, you know, are altered by works of art. And I, th I think that historical frames or markers or records of reference, not immutable laws that, you know, direct all future courses of action and perpetuity, you know what I mean, in, in your field. The third work in Houston is titled City of Abstracts. It's a screen or a couple of screens that present as a single screen. And it uses an algorithm to reveal to people their own movement, people standing in front of the screen their own movement, it offers them kind of as abstractions, if you will. What about presenting movement to somebody who's doing the moving as an abstraction interests you? So watching people uh, exhibit curiosity is for me a very, I, I enjoy that. And I think other people enjoy being in a group, watching people investigate together. The choreography is sort of, you know, or choreographic objects are sort of an expanded field of, field of inquiry then that is a good example of a field of inquiry, a specific field of inquiry. No one, when they walk in, knows how that works. But moving, you can acquire familiarity with the algorithms, so to speak, with that program, and you unconsciously start to investigate with your body. So that's why it's called a choreographic object. It, this investigation for people, how does this work? How can I affect my own self-image? Is actually producing motion, but unconsciously. They are producing very specific motions to find out which, which direction does it work, which vector is effective. Does rotation work? Does descent work? Does elevation work? But they are going slowly through a categorical investigation of what 
causes this particular outcome, this visual outcome, but unconsciously they've been choreographed. You know, with my critic's hat on, I would say that it's also a work that uses the body, the thing that is most personal to us, to force us to engage with, grapple with the impact of algorithms on our lives, which is um, increasingly, increasing seemingly daily. Was that an interest of yours? No, it wasn't. I was uh, curious to see what solutions people come up with. And as in many of the works, some of the best solutions are from people under the age of 20 in many, many different areas. So it's, it's for me a place to study if I do go and watch. And I'm, I'm always surprised at what people also don't investigate. For example, bending the knees is something people don't do very much anymore. We don't uh, live in a primarily agrarian society. We're all stuck sitting. So people are doing a lot of lateral things. They sort of rock side to side. That seems to like, be like the first impulse. But you don't see people you know, leaping to a big squat and then jumping up in the air like what do you call them, burpees or something. You know. So it's also has to do with the person's background, their age, what work they do, what, what life they've led. But it's very interesting to see the, the expanded and the contracted physical frames of the participants. Was there a choreographer or an artist who provided you with either the permission or impetus to make installations that required a viewer to be physically active within them? It was Daniel Liebeskind, the architect. He asked me to do a project, to be part of a project, called Marking the City Boundaries of Groningen in Holland and asked me to practice my own, or to exercise my own practice in his architectural context. So I ended up making a quote-unquote choreography for a half a kilometer of trees that were bent by wires over a canal in the middle of a field and saw that, at least I perceived it as a very incremental sort of glacial choreography. We'll have an image of that on uh, manpodcast.com. The last thing I wanted to ask is about an interview you did with Louise Neri in the catalog for the ICA Boston exhibition from which these three works come to Houston. And in the catalog, you say that, quote, what I frequently attempt to do is to isolate phenomena that are so fully integrated into our unconscious physical selves that they are invisible to us. And I thought that was really interesting because there's a significant lineage of visual art that has done this over the last few decades. I'm thinking of, of light and space art or New York minimalism and how it adapted machined processes to precious objects, if you will. So naturally, I'm wondering if, as you migrated from or bled from choreography into installations such as these in Houston, you know, these works activate the viewer in a specific way. And so I wonder if there were visual art informants. I mean, as a choreographer, I've always been interested in categories. I would say as part of my practice, I'm constantly trying to, to achieve very differentiated results when I'm working with professional dancers. And that involves refining language and being very specific. Um, you can also be uh, specifically poetic, yeah, but you, can, you have to be specific. So what I've done is to let 
people participate in that specificity that I experience on a daily level. It's nothing new or different for me. It's, it's you know, choreography as I do it every day, but there is no reason for people to move with that specificity or care under normal conditions. For example, you think of deceleration, there's a room we have which a, a, a perfect circle is projected like one pixel wide in, in a trough of fog. And if you move, the whole thing disappears. It's gone, the whole object that, that, that emerges. So we say to people, please move but into the room, but do not disturb the air, right? So this would be a typical thing you would say to a dancer in the process of trying to coach a work. You say, yes, go in there, don't attack it, but move, but as if you were trying not to disturb the air. And that evokes in a professional dancer a certain quality. And for uh, a regular, the regular Joe public or Jill public, it's going to do something else. They can treat it as inhibition. For them, it's deceleration. And of course, they become destabilized because they're not used to asking their bodies to move in that capacity. So I don't know how this connects to, to visual arts, but I'm interested in like the choreographic process, what happens to it when it doesn't have its usual public, which are professionals. You get things like my question, for one. <laughs> <laughs> William Forsyth, thanks so much. Uh, thank you so much, Kyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.